Hello and welcome back to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Elby. On the program today, I'll be having a conversation with Hugh McKenzie. He has written a report for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives called A Soft Landing, Recession and Canada's 100 Highest Paid CEOs. And we'll be talking about another report that was written by David Robinson, Associate Executive Director of the Canadian Association of University Teachers, that has to do with the academic freedom and professional rights of teaching personnel in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. Plus a bit of fun with Dr. Seuss in Copenhagen. Music is the Weapon with Mitch Padola. The Alert Headlines. That and much more on Alert Radio. for the week of January 14th, 2010. In the run-up to the February Vancouver Winter Olympics, an international coalition of workers' rights organizations is releasing its rating of commitments made by major sportswear brands to eliminate sweatshop abuses in their global supply chains. The coalition, which includes Canada's Makia Solidarity Network, is also posting a series of web ads accusing the brands that profit off the Olympics of a race to the bottom on wages and working conditions. The influential British magazine The Economist has condemned Prime Minister Stephen Harper's decision to prorogue Parliament until after the Winter Olympics. In a strongly worded editorial, the magazine said Mr. Harper's move looks like naked self-interest and proroguing Parliament twice in two years sets a dangerous precedent. The editorial points out that Mr. Harper chose December 30th, the day five Canadians were killed in Afghanistan, and when the public and the press were further distracted by the announcement of the country's all-important Olympic hockey team to let his spokesman reveal that Parliament would remain closed until March 3rd instead of returning as usual after its Christmas break in the last week of January. Inuit living on Baffin Island say they're worried about the caribou this winter as the animals have not been seen at the usual hunting spots. Jayco Alulu, chairman of the Midimadalik Hunters and Trappers Organization in Pond Inlet, Nunavut, said hunters on the island have had to travel greater distances this fall and winter to find caribou. Caribou populations fluctuate depending on the presence of vegetation and predators, but Alulu says he believes caribou have been scared off by heightened aerial activity since Baffin Island Iron Mine Corp. began building a mining camp south of Pond Inlet in the past year. President Evo Morales of Bolivia has invited activists, scientists, academics, lawyers and governments that want to work with their citizens to fight climate change to a People's World Conference on Climate Change and Mother Earth's Rights to be held in Bolivia this April. In his invitation, Morales blames the developed capitalist countries for failing to reach a climate deal at the Copenhagen Climate Summit last December. The conference will make it clear that those most affected by climate change will be the world's poor who will see their homes and their sources of survival destroyed, says Morales. The publication Defense News reports the U.S. Army will double the value of emergency military equipment it stockpiles on Israeli soil and that Israel will be allowed to use the U.S. ordinance if needed. The $800 million stockpile will include missiles, 
armored vehicles, aerial ammunition, and artillery ordnance. The news of the military equipment deal comes amid some tension between Israel and the Obama administration. Last week, U.S. envoy George Mitchell, Mitchell said Washington could penalize Israel financially to force it into making concessions to the Palestinians. Meanwhile, Israel has announced plans to construct two walls along its southern border with Egypt in an attempt to prevent African refugees and asylum seekers from entering Israel. Workers in the United States have just received more devastating news. 85,000 jobs were lost in December, a far higher number than analysts had projected. The official unemployment rate remained at 10 percent, but that was only because 661,000 people were not counted as unemployed because they had not looked for a job in the four weeks preceding the December survey. If those people had been included in the tally, the jobless rate would have been closer to 10.4 percent. President Obama has acknowledged the latest job numbers were discouraging. A committee of the Iranian parliament has released an official report criticizing abuses that led to the deaths of three prisoners in the wake of last year's disputed presidential elections. The report criticizes the conditions at the Karizak Detention Center and says the prisoners died as a result of physical attacks. This is reportedly the first publicly documented admission by the Iranian government that abuses occurred in the weeks after President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's re-election. In New York, a federal court will hear arguments in a lawsuit against several international corporations accused of aiding South Africa's apartheid-era government. Companies named in the lawsuit include Daimler AG, General Motors, Ford Motor Company, and IBM. And those are the alert headlines for January 14, 2010. And now around the left for January 14th to 25th. Dave Zirin is an award-winning sports writer and will be speaking in Vancouver on January 20th. He will be speaking on the politics of sport and mega sporting events. Zirin was named on Utney Reader's 50 Visionaries Who Are Changing Our World. There is a suggested donation of $10, though nobody will be turned away for lack of funds. The lecture begins at 6.30 on Jan 20th at the Maritime Labour Centre, 1880 Triumph Street in Vancouver. Three Canadian MPs joined a Canadian-led delegation to the West Bank and Gaza last August to document the living conditions of Palestinians and to witness the devastation of Israel's war on Gaza. On January 21st, they will present their findings and discuss strategies for peace in the region. This presentation is held at Oakham House at Ryerson University in Toronto. The evening begins at 7.30 on Thursday, January 21st. On Thursday evening, Jan 21st, there's a launch of the 2010 edition of Socialist Register titled Morbid Symptoms, Health Under Capitalism. The proceeds of the launch will go to the Ontario Health Coalition. The launch includes a panel discussion if contributing authors, including Pat Armstrong, Colin Lees and Roddy Lipke. The event takes place on Thursday, Jan 21st at 7.30 p.m. at Annex Live, 296 Brunswick Avenue in Toronto. Métis independent filmmaker Shane Belcourt will serve as the Winnipeg Film Group's Aboriginal Artist-in-Residence from January 12th until January 22nd. Belcourt will participate in a variety of outreach, filmmaker development, and screening programs. To find out more information, check out Winnipeg Film Group's website at www.winnipegfilmgroup.com. The 2010 Olympics have been touted as the economic savior for the BC economy. But what is the long-term impact of investments such as a speed skating oval, a new sea-to-sky highway, the RAV line, and a $900 million security budget? 
A panel on the economics of the 2010 Olympics will take place on Jan 25th in Vancouver. Panelists include members from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, the Olympic Resistance Network and other community organizations. The discussion begins at 7 p.m. on January 25th at the Calvary Baptist Church. On January 25th, there will be Canada-wide demonstrations in protest of a prorogued parliament. All demonstrations are planned to begin at 1 p.m. To find out what's happening in your city, check out www.citizensfordemocracy.com. And that was Around the Left for January 14th to the 25th. Hugh McKenzie is principal in an economic consulting business, Hugh McKenzie and Associates, based in Toronto. Prior to establishing his consulting business, he served as research director in the Canadian National Office of the United Steelworkers. From 1991 to 94, Mr. McKenzie served as executive director of the Ontario Fair Tax Commission. Just a few weeks ago, he authored a report for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives called A Soft Landing, Recessions and Canada's 100 Highest Paid CEOs. It is that report we wish to talk to him about on Alert Radio. We have him on the phone from Toronto. Hello, Hugh McKenzie, and welcome to Alert Radio. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's start with a summary of how you would characterize the pay of the 100 highest paid CEOs in Canada in 2008. And please throw in some examples. Well, uh, the, in a word, it's outrageous. Uh, the uh, average of the top 100 CEOs had already earned what the average Canadian had earned uh, by a little after 1 o'clock in the afternoon on the second paid day of the year. It uh, gives you a bit of a sense of, of how extreme uh, uh, this is. Uh, the, uh, the top paid CEO in Canada was a guy named Thomas Closer, who's the uh, CEO of, of uh, Thomson Reuters, the uh, uh, business information company. He made $36 million uh, in 2008. Um, they, there are other CEOs who made in the, in the $20 million range. Uh, the, uh, uh, one, of the mo- one of the more notable sets of numbers was the numbers for uh, the uh, CEOs of the, uh, of the major Canadian banks, uh, which uh, your listeners may remember uh, uh, during uh, 2008. Uh, got assistance to the tune of about $65 billion from the federal government. Uh, they made off with uh, average salaries uh, amongst the uh, the six of them, uh, amongst, amongst the six, six banks of well in excess of $6 million. Well, are these numbers strikingly different from what CEOs earned a decade earlier? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, one of the things that, uh, uh, one of the things that has, it's always said in response to these numbers from the apologists for high-paid CEOs as well. Things have always been like this. Well, but in fact, they haven't. Uh, the the uh, the interesting thing is that the soaring of CEO pay into the stratosphere is really a feature of the economic bubble uh, that's been happening in the last few years. As recently as as uh, 1998, just 10 years ago, 
the ratio of uh, CEO pay to the average pay was 104 as compared with the 174 ratio that it was uh, in 2008. And if you go back 10 years before that to the late 1980s, uh, the ratio was about 40. And 20 years before that, it was about 20. So uh, CEOs have really been racing off into the stratosphere recently uh, in a kind of unchecked fashion. I think it's fair to say. Well, now compare that for us, if you will, with the rise in wages that the average worker has seen in Canada. Well, that's a pretty stark uh, set of numbers. Uh, if you go back to uh, uh, 1998 again, uh, since 1998, uh, when you adjust for inflation, the average Canadian worker has lost 6% to inflation, whereas the average of the top 100 CEOs has gained 70%. So it's Compared with inflation, minus 6 for the average Canadian worker, 70% for the average CEO. And can you try to explain uh, this situation? It's uh, very confounding. Well, uh, to put it bluntly, CEOs have a very good union. Uh, they, uh, they, uh, uh, their CEO salaries are, are, are set uh, by boards of directors. Uh, many of the members of boards of directors are themselves CEOs, and so they've got no interest in upsetting the apple cart. Um, and there's a bit of a... Um, uh, boards of directors, I think, are in, in, to a certain extent, are in a bit of a trap because uh, uh, nobody wants to lose their CEO because they want to go elsewhere. And so uh, the combination of a kind of pay system that really doesn't have a maximum to it and, frankly, pretty unrestrained greed means that... Uh, that CEO pay just keeps leaping upwards. Okay, so we have numbers from 2008, and that's really before the major economic crisis of last year. So right. how did they fare during the major you know, recession that we're experiencing? Did they sustain their incomes uh, while the rest of us have faced reduced hours, reduced pay, and uh, losses of benefits and, and job losses outright? Well, it's a little complicated, actually, comparing uh, 2008 with prior years because they changed the basis on which they report. But on a consistent basis, uh, my, my estimate is that uh, CEOs basically have lost about a year of pay increase. In other words, they're back to CEOs in 2008 made about what they made in 2006. So they lost the increase that they, uh, that they uh, realized in 2007. And to put it into perspective, coming back to that time of day uh, when CEOs passed the average Canadian, it works out to about a, about a three-hour difference uh, between uh, 2007, which was the peak, and 2008. Not much of a difference. Okay, maybe you can also help us understand what their pay consists of. For example, salary, stock options, bonuses, and so forth. Well, I, generalizing... Uh, in, it, it, Generalizing the, the situation, um, CEOs get about uh, 20%, 20-25% of their pay uh, in the form of base salary, and they get another 20-25% of their pay in uh, bonuses, either in the form of stock or in the form of uh, cash. And then the rest of it, uh, the other 50%, is in the form of grants of stock and stock options. And the stock options in particular are uh, one of the key explainers for the uh, incredibly rapid rise in CEO pay because uh, stock options 
when when you when you pay somebody in the form of a stock option, there really there really is no cap on the amount that they're paid, uh, and. Uh, and to and to make it even more attractive for CEOs to be uh, paid in the form of stock options, uh, one of the quirks of the Canadian income tax system is that if you're paid in the form of if if your pay comes in the form of realization uh, of benefits from stock options, that income is taxed at half the rate of the uh, rate that Canadians ordinary Canadians pay on on their pay because it's considered under the tax act to be a capital gain, even though the executive actually has no money at risk. Can you give me an example of that? Sure. Uh, well, let's just look at the, uh, at the, average, uh, the average CEO. Uh, the average CEO got, uh, got about $1.8 million uh, of their pay in the form of stock options. The value of the tax subsidy on that pay on average, is about $375,000. So if you're looking at CEO pay, uh, about, uh, about close to $400,000 of that money, and that's a very low estimate, um, is, is actually a gift from uh, Canadians generally to the CEOs through this tax preference. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm speaking to Hugh McKenzie, author of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives report, A Soft Landing, Recessions and Canada's 100 Highest Paid CEOs. Now, at the beginning of the interview, you described it as an outrageous situation. So tell us, who sets the amounts that these CEOs earn each year? For most of us, our pay is decided by our boss, and we take it or leave it. If we are in a union... They negotiate with the employer. But in this case, the executives are accountable to whom? The board of the directors? The Well, theoretically, they're accountable to the board of directors, and the board of directors sets the pay. Um, the, in reality, the, the process uh, is a bit less transparent than that. Um, when, when, when you say that the pay is set by the board of directors, what people don't say very often is that is that uh, many of the members of board of boards of directors are themselves chief executive officers, so they actually have a vested interest in making sure that the merry-go-round doesn't stop. And then on top of that, uh, one of the major players in determining how much CEOs are paid uh, are uh, are the compensation consultants, the uh, uh, firms like Mercer's and Hay, uh, Wyatt. Uh, other companies like that, part of whose business is advising board of, boards of directors on what they should be paying these characters. And uh, these compensation consultants, uh, frankly, tend to be retained by the CEOs themselves. And so if you're a compensation consultant and you want to keep getting hired, you're not going to recommend a salary level. You're not going to recommend, for example, that the CEO's pay should be cut in half. Uh, so there's a bit of a um, the the uh, again the apologists like to refer to, uh, to to talk about the CEO compensation process as if it's some kind of a democratic process where uh, shareholders decide how much they pay their CEOs. Uh, in fact, it's a pretty tightly controlled club uh, that just keeps paying itself more and more and more every year. Well, Hugh McKenzie, can anything be done to control these massive incomes? Regulation, taxation. Well, one of the things that I've actually been a little bit encouraged by uh, as this issue's developed, because I've been doing this work for about five years, 
And uh, frankly, five years ago, uh, when we did this stuff, it was a bit like a gong show presentation. You know, people were kind of stunned by the numbers, but there really wasn't a lot of serious debate about how much CEOs were paid. Uh, in 2008, 2009, we started to see some political attention being paid, uh, particularly to how much people in the financial services sector are paid, but also to how much people are paid uh, to serve as CEOs of corporations generally. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that there's some unusual suspects out there who are starting to complain pretty vociferously about uh, how much CEOs are paid. Uh, for example, in the paper, I've quoted extensively from uh, Roger Martin, who's the dean of the business school at the University of Toronto, um, and a man named Henry Mintzberg, who is an academic based in Montreal, who's recognized as one of the leading uh, business academics in the world. Uh, and they've both just come down like a ton of bricks on uh, the, both the level and the system for CEO compensation, um, really going after paying people in the form of stock and stock options. So there's, there, there is some criticism coming out there. Um, I think that, that um, outside of some very specific regulated sectors, uh, like, uh, like the banking sector, I think the best way to get at these guys is through the tax system. And I think I can think of two or three ways that one might do that. Um, one is that uh, I, I'd like to see in the Corporations Tax, in the Corporations Tax Act, uh, a limit on the amount of money that a corporation to deduct uh, in the, for pay for its chief executive officer and other senior officers. So that uh, if a corporation decides to pay these outrageous amounts of money, they have to pay most of the amount, most of the uh, that outrageous amount from after-tax dollars, not before-tax dollars. So that ta other other Canadians aren't subsidizing that corporation paying those those outrageous amounts. Um, the other thing I'd like to see is uh, a move to, get, to put some progressivity back into uh, the personal income tax system. Uh, I've uh, and and it, this is starting to gain some traction. I noticed that uh, in the New York Times on the weekend. Um, Paul Krugman is, is uh, calling for uh, a return to much higher top marginal tax rates uh, to claw back some of these outrageous amounts of money to pay for public programs. And in Canada, to use the lingo of the, uh, of the, the business community, there's some pretty low-hanging fruit in the tax front. Uh, one of the things that I, if I, if, if I could wave, wave a magic wand, one of the things I'd do in about three nanoseconds is change the law so that uh, when people are paid in the form of stock options, they pay tax at the same rate as everybody else. Very well. Thank you, Hugh McKenzie. Uh, we just have about a minute and a half left here uh, on Alert Radio. So can you uh, tell our listeners across the country what they should do if they want to get involved and help to, uh, prog uh, to advance progressive measures in regulating CEO pay in Canada? Well, one of the things that I think people can do is uh, is uh, basically deliver a message to politicians that they've got to get serious about the tax rates that are paid uh, by people who make very, very high incomes. Our progressive income tax system maxes out um, at $120,000. And while that may have been a substantial income 20 or 25 years ago, uh, it's really falling far short of the mark now, and and uh, we need to we need to do something 
uh, on the tax front uh, in order to get after that. I think we also need to, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we, we should be pushing politicians to get rid of the outrageous loophole uh, that uh, basically provides a subsidy from, uh, from ordinary taxpayers uh, to the stock option income of these very rich people. And the third thing I do is is uh, is is really start clamoring for uh, uh, regulatory limits on the pay of people who work in industries uh, whose business position is protected by regulation. And that's not just the banks. That would include, uh, for example, the uh, the telephone companies, the cable companies, uh, a lot of uh, public utility companies, uh, who's, who who and which companies basically enjoy their market position because of public regulation there ought to be some uh there ought to be some uh compensation in the form of of uh, salary regulation to compensate for that well, I'd like to just ask you about one other idea that's uh, maybe a few decades old, but we record here in the in Winnipeg at the University of Manitoba, and there was an idea once mused by Ed Schreier when he was first elected Premier of Manitoba, and it was this, to legislate a maximum gap of two to one between the pay of business executives and the average pay of the workers they employ. What do you think of that, Hugh McKenzie? Well, I think that, that uh, that's that some some sort of ratio limit uh, is a is a really good idea. Um, the question is how you would go about uh, implementing it. And uh, uh, for for me, the uh, the most effective way of doing that is is to hit corporations where it hurts in the pocketbook and limit the amount of pay that they can deduct. Uh, we could we could have a we could have a lengthy debate about about uh, you know what the number is. Uh, whether it's two or whether it's ten or whatever it is, but uh, the the uh, it's pretty clear, and it's not just me saying this. It's a lot of there are a lot of people who are uh, have a lot uh, more important, significant business business community credentials than I have, uh, who are saying that the system's broken. It's completely out of control, and it needs to be something done about it. Hugh McKenzie, author of A Soft Landing, Recessions, and Canada's 100 Highest Paid CEOs, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise on Alert Radio. My pleasure. Courtesy of The Now Show, we present Dr. Seuss in Copenhagen. The delegates came and the delegates sat and they talked and they talked till their bums all went flat. Then a delegate said of the country he knew... We must do something quick, but just what should we do? So they sat again, thinking, and there they stayed seated, sitting and thinking the planet's been heated. I think... Said a delegate there from Peru... That we all must agree on some things we could do, like reducing emissions, at least CO2. So they nodded and noted, then vetoed and voted, and one of them stood up and suddenly quoted... It's the science, you see. That's the thing that must guide us. When the leaders all get here, they're certain. To chide us. So they sat again, thinking about what to think, then decided to ponder what colour of ink to use on the paper when they'd all agreed to be selfless, not greedy, McGreedy, McGreed. But how do we choose just what colour to use? Said a delegate there who'd been having a snooze. We need clear binding targets, definitive action. We must all agree clearly without more distraction. So they sat again, thinking of targets for ink, but the ink in their thinking had started to stink, and they started to think that the ink was a kink in the thinking about real things they should think. <laughs> Thank you.
If the climate needs mending, then this is our chance. Said the nuclear delegate sent there by France. We need to agree on one thing to agree on, something we all want a fixed guarantee on. Yes, said another who thought this made sense. Some value for carbon in dollars or pence. But the mention of money and thoughts of expense had stifled the progress and things became tense. The fellow from China, with a smile on his face, said, Who put the carbon there in the first place? <laughs> Wasn't us, said the US, then Europe did too. Then a silence descended and no words were spoken till a delegate stood up, voice nervous and broken. Is there nothing upon which we all can decide? Because on Wednesday my chicken laid eggs that were fried. <laughs> we all like a sing-song, said the bloke from down under, but then the great hall was all shouting and thunder. Policemen had entered and were wearing protesters who they'd beaten and flattened like blooded sou'westers. <laughs> The police had decided to downplay this crime with prevention, detention and beatings in rhyme. The greenies who'd shouted and asked for decision were now being battered with lethal precision. All sick of inaction and fed up of waiting, all tired of the endless debated placating, they'd risen up grating, berating and hating, so the police had commenced the related abating. <laughs> Banky Moon put his head in another man's lap and was last heard muttering something like, Crap. <laughs> But the chap next to him said, It's more like it's poo. So the Great Hall debated not what they should do, but how to decide between crap, cack and poo. It is poo. It is cack. It is crap. We, we agree. agree. Which was written and labelled as document three. I think if we all find one thing we agree on, then maybe Brazil might be left with a tree on. So they sat again, thinking of trees in Brazil and of glaciers which had retreated uphill, and they thought of the poor folks whose homes were in flood, but less of the protesters covered in blood. They pondered the species so nearly extinct, it's as if they all thought that these things might be linked. We need a solution. We need action, please, said a lady who'd come from the sinking Maldives. The others all nodded and said it was fact that the time must be now not to talk but to act. Then Obama arrived and said most rhetorical, Action is action and not metaphorical. Wow, they all thought. He must mean allegorical. I love it when Barrett goes all oratorical. <laughs> uh, but the problem I have is that Congress won't pass it. Bugger, said Banky, then sorry, then arse it. <laughs> then Brown said... I've got it. Now, how does this strike you? It's simpler when voters already dislike you. <laughs> he suggested the EU should lead from the front, so the Mail and the Telegraph called him something very unpleasant indeed. <laughs> So the delegates stared at the text with red marks on, ignoring the gales of laughter from Clarkson. No one was satisfied, nobody won, except the morons convinced it was really the sun, and they blew it and wasted the greatest of chances. Instead, they all frolicked in diplomat dances and decided decisively right there and then that the best way to solve it is to meet up again and decide on a future that's greener and greater, not with action right now, but with something else later. <laughs> Academic freedom and professional rights of teaching personnel in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza are increasingly under assault, according to a report released today by Education International and the Canadian Association of University Teachers. We have the author of that report, David Robinson, on the phone from his office in Ottawa. David is the Associate Executive Director of the CAUT. 
David Robinson, welcome to Alert Radio. Thank you. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. First off, David, tell our listeners uh, how you came to write this report. Um, it seems a little off the track for a Canadian Association of University Teachers. Uh, well, it may seem, seem so at, at first, but uh, one of the mandates of CAUT is uh, not only to uh, work to improve the professional rights and status of, uh, of, of our members within Canada, but also to work to improve the status of staff worldwide. And uh, our organization was very instrumental, along with the Government of Canada at the time, in uh, 1997, in bringing forward through UNESCO uh, a, uh, a non-binding uh, set of recommendations concerning the status of higher education teaching personnel globally. And so for the past uh, five or six years now, we've been producing in conjunction with Education International regular reports and updates on, on compliance with that uh, recommendation. And so let's talk a little bit, uh, David, first about the political conflict um, that has affected academic freedom in Israeli universities. We'll lead off with that. Well, I think, uh, I mean, obviously in the in the whole region, the backdrop to the situation affecting higher education teachers is the ongoing political conflict. And within Israeli institutions itself, uh, there's been, and I, I, w- I would say this has increased in recent years, uh, increasing uh, controversy about uh, surrounding uh, certain academics who speak out against uh, Israeli government policies. There's a number of uh, watch groups, uh, very conservative groups, that uh, try and keep tracks of uh, what Israeli academics are saying, uh, try and put pressure on the institutions to get rid of them. And by and large, most institutions so far have have protected those academics, but there's some worrying signs recently that uh, some people, in particular uh, Dr. Nev Gordon at uh, Beersheba or at uh, Ben Gurion University in Beersheba, who has come under uh, a lot of administrative pressure uh, for his denunciation of certain policies of the Israeli government. And so, what has uh, been the consequence of that? Uh, well, so far, uh, the consequence I think has been uh, a kind of pervasive chilling of academic freedom within Israeli institutions. I think also within the uh, academic unions there. There's a real reluctance to take up uh, many of these cases because they are so controversial and uh, because uh, it's, it's a whole different kind of environment there, to, right. uh, to uh, put it mildly. And I, so I think there is a kind of self-censorship of academic freedom in Israel. And, and so let's talk about the other side now. How has the conflict affected Palestinian academics and students? Uh, well, there the, the major impact has been the result of the ongoing policies of the occupation and in particular the, the restrictions on movement, uh, which makes it very difficult uh, for academics to travel not, not only outside uh, their, uh, their territory, but also even within the West Bank. And the near-total blockade on uh, Gaza has made it uh, impossible for students who are in Gaza, who are enrolled in institutions in the West Bank and elsewhere around the world, to leave in order to pursue their, uh, their studies. But there's also been, been blanket... Uh, uh, restrictions on the importation of uh, of uh, precision equipment uh, that that could be used in research, uh, but the Israeli authorities argue it could be also used for uh, more nefarious purposes. Uh, so there's a real kind of clampdown on the ability of Palestinian academics to uh, pursue those kind of international connections, uh, but also to conduct the scholarly work. And so is there more parallels between the conflict uh, that has affected Palestinian academics versus Israeli academics, uh, or are there more differences? Uh, I mean, I think, I think the, one, the, the, one, the one common thread is that both higher education systems are poor because of the conflict. I think in Israel, 
it's not only the uh, the kind of political censorship and political pressure placed on many uh, academics, but it's also that in a very militarized society, uh, and uh, in which a large portion of the state budget, uh, for obvious reasons, has to go to security and to and to, to defense, it means less money available for public services like universities. And so there's a real underfunding problem within Israeli higher education right now that shows up in very high student-faculty ratios, uh, higher tuition fees, and uh, a real uh, academic flight that many many uh, professors are leaving Israel uh, for uh, better pay and better conditions uh, in Western Europe and in North America. The same kind of constraints obviously are, are magnified more on the Palestinian side but there's, I think there is a common thread there. And, you know, the things you've just mentioned obviously have had an effect on students. What other things can you mention uh, about this particular conflict that has had an effect on students in both Palestine and Israel? Uh, well, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly be, because of many of the policies, it's, it's been very, very difficult for, for Palestinian students uh, to access higher education. And I think that's, that's, that's a real tragedy in some ways, uh, uh, even definite. though uh, Palestine has has defied the odds and has one of the highest uh, uh, post-secondary education completion rates uh, in, the, in the region amongst the neighboring Arab states. Wow. Uh, but I think uh, you know, if, if we are going to uh, be able to see a peaceful solution to the conflict at some time in the, in the, in the future there, I think that strong civil society or organizations and institutions like universities are going to play a really important role and that the solution has to be more education, not less education. Yeah, and I would agree with that, and time will tell. Uh, finally, David, what actions does your report recommend for Canadian faculty and students? Uh, well, I think that's, that's something that uh, our organization is going to have to, to debate internally, but certainly I think what we need to do is continue to shine a spotlight on the situation uh, in, in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. Uh, we have a Canadian government right now that's uh, very much uh, uh, supporting the current uh, Israeli government policies. And I think we need to put pressure on our government to play a more moderate role. And as the author of the 1997 UNESCO recommendation, I think we have some moral uh, sway there. I think we need to uh, develop stronger links with faculty in Israel and in the occupied territories uh, to let them know that they're not alone and that to provide some kind of mutual support uh, to, to assist them. And have we been doing that at all? Uh, I think we've, we've been doing it in more of an ad hoc basis, and I would like to see a uh, stronger plan of action uh, for faculty associations, not just here in Canada, but also globally. And that's why we uh, committed to uh, do this report with Education International, which is the global federation of all teachers' unions and associations around the world, uh, to, uh, I think, develop a more concerted and positive action to help support and strengthen uh, the voice of faculty and students uh, within the region. And so this is a good starting point. Um, I want to thank you so much for shedding some light on this. It's been my pleasure. Okay, you have a good one. You too. Thank you. And that was David Robinson, Associate Executive Director of the Canadian Association of University Teachers in Ottawa. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. And on today's show, maybe a few ruminations about a few of the things that are happening. I get really saddened and, and really tired of watching the ramp ceremonies. They've really, they've really gotten to me. You know, the, you see it in Kabul, the army guys carrying the coffin with the flag draped over it and the 
bagpipe playing Amazing Grace or some other tune of glory and everybody marching in a slow step. And then they show the plane landing in, in Canada and there's another ramp ceremony with the same kind of stuff, only this time, very often, there is the parents or the wife of our neighbors uh, standing there and very often, most often, they'll say, oh, of course, I, I support the mission because that's why Johnny died. It's really interesting, that whole social phenomenon of watching the, the ramp ceremonies. In the United States, they've, uh, they're so afraid of this kind of uh, ceremony, this kind of uh, human event, that they pretty much have blocked them from, from public. That they've pretty much blocked them from public. And wh where, what happens there is there's a place in a town called Dover, Delaware, where all the war dead come home. So here's a song about Dover, Delaware. Delaware 
the shore fade behind me Watch the smoke from the grey ship stack Watch the cannon and the bomb fall And when it's done Till they fight no more Till my love I'll be waiting there In Dover, Delaware Dover, Delaware Sing a love song for the first to fall Keep singing till they fight no Was part of a good platoon. Over on maneuvers in Louisiana, one night by the light of the moon. His captain said, We gotta ford the river, that's where it all began. Over knee deep in the big muddy and the damned fool kept yelling to push on. Sergeant said, sir, are you sure this is the way back to base? Sergeant, I once crossed this river, not a mile above this place. It'll be a little soggy, but we'll keep on slogging. We'll soon be on dry ground. When we're waist deep in the big muddy and the damn fool kept yelling to push on. Captain, sir, with all this gear, no man will be able to swim. Sergeant, don't be a nervous nelly, the captain said to him. All we need is a little determination, follow me, I'll lead on. But we're neck deep in the big muddy and the damn fool kept yelling to push on. All of a sudden, the moon clouded over. All we heard was a gurgling cry. And a second later, the captain's helmet was all that floated by. The sergeant said, turn round, men. I'm in charge from now on. And I just made it out of the big muddy with a captain dead and gone.
stripped and dived and found his body stuck in the old quicksand. I guess he didn't know the water was deeper than the place where he'd once been. But another stream had joined the muddy a half mile from where we'd gone. We were lucky to get out of the big muddy when that damn fool kept yelling to push on. Want to draw conclusions? Leave that to yourself. Maybe you're still walking. Maybe you're still talking. Maybe you still got your health. But every time I hear the news, that old feeling comes back on. We're neck deep in the big muddy, and the damn fools keep yelling to push on. Knee deep in the big muddy, and the fools keep yelling. We steep in the big muddy and the damn fools keep yelling. Push on. We steep neck deep, we'll be drowning before too long. We're neck deep in the big muddy and the damn fools keep yelling. So push on. That was Dick Cochin singing Waist Deep in the Big Muddy. And before that, it was The Ducks with Dover, Delaware. A lot of songs, of course, have been written about war and the experiences of war. And the, every once in a while, there's the, the aftermath of a war. And here's a song about the aftermath of the war and the perspective it gives a human being. Start thinking on this thing 
DeFranco with my name is Lisa Kavalich. That's it for this week, folks. See you next week. And that was our first episode of Alert Radio for 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. And we hope you will join us again next week. We'll see you then.
Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension Magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind Alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension Magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out CanadianDimension.com. Yeah.